put your money where your mouth is. I'm sure you've heard that before. Uh, that phrase normally comes up in the context of kind of betting, gambling. Some guy is kind of running his mouth about something he's so certain of, so sure of, uh, that uh, someone challenges him. If you're so certain about this, then, then back it up with financial proof. Would it surprise you if, if I told you that that was sound advice for followers of Jesus? We say that we're going to heaven, but does our use of money talk? Does it give evidence that we really believe we are? Do we put our money not only where our mouths are, but where our hearts are? The truth is, is that we do put our money where our hearts are. The question that we've got to ask ourselves is this. Where are our hearts? It was the prolific Puritan preacher William Gurnall who rightly said, Nothing is more contrary to a heavenly hope than an earthly heart. So, what is our money? And in particular, our, our use of money saying about our hearts. This is what we're challenged to consider together this morning in Luke chapter 16. If you haven't done so already, then let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles or turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find Luke 16 beginning on page 875. 875. We are a little more than halfway through our study of the Gospel of Luke, and what we've learned so far is that through this first century Greco-Roman biography of Jesus, Luke is endeavoring to communicate good news to his readers and to us. And that good news is simply this, the Savior of the world has come to invite sinners like you and me into his eternal kingdom. Luke's Gospel is an orderly, faithful, and accurate account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was written shortly after the events it recounts, and it is based upon the testimony of those who actually saw and interacted with Jesus. It chronicles the life of Jesus in a, a rough chronological order, with a long section in the middle focusing in on Jesus' public teaching. And that's the section that we've been studying these last several weeks. Jesus' public teaching ministry. While on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross for sinners and to be raised from the grave, Jesus is teaching anyone and everyone who will listen to him. Sometimes he directly addresses his disciples, those who are following him. Sometimes he addresses the, the large crowds who have gathered. And sometimes he addresses the Jewish religious leaders. The latter group has received a good bit of Jesus' attention over these last several chapters. As Jesus has pointed out their hypocrisy, their greed, their love of praise from men, and their lack of love for the outcast. Some, some of these themes emerge in the chapter that we're looking at together this morning, in Luke chapter 16. And at one level, we could say that Luke 16 is about money, 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 money. And if some song came to your mind, well then there that is. Let me show you what I mean, though. Take a look there at verse 1 of chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. 
So with the mention of the rich man and the wasting of possessions, we see the money is going to be an issue as Jesus begins his teaching. Now if you fast forward, fast forward to verse 14, that's the little number there, verse 14, you see that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Jesus may have been directly addressing his disciples, but he was also indirectly addressing the Pharisees with his parable and subsequent teaching. Now, if you skip down to verse 19, you'll see the emergence of another parable from Jesus that begins with a rich man, Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, I trust that you can see why I said that at one level, Luke 16 is about money. And yet, Luke 16 is only about money at one level, the surface level. Uh, we must remember that Luke's gospel is about Jesus. Jesus addresses the subject of money and its use as a means to challenge his hearers, his disciples, and the Pharisees in all of this. In all of this, Jesus is asking his hearers if they love him and his kingdom. Let's remember that in Luke's gospel, Jesus has already said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said that in Luke chapter 12, verse 34. And I would remind us that Jesus said that on this very road that he's continuing to teach on. Heart language is, is prevalent throughout Luke chapter 16. Take a look at verse 13 there. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is language of the heart. Love and hate are ways of expressing our inner attitudes about something. The same is true about being devoted and despising. And here's what we need to understand about Luke 16. Our use, abuse, and attitude toward money matters because it reveals whether we worship mammon or the maker. Our use, abuse, and attitude toward money matters because it reveals whether we worship created things or the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our use, abuse, and attitude toward money matters because it reveals whether we have set our hope on the earth or in eternity. The question that this chapter asks us is this. Do you, do you have eternity in your heart? If you do, it will be evident in your use of money. We're going to study Luke chapter 16 in two sections under two headings because Jesus seems to directly address two particular groups. His disciples beginning there in verse 1 and the Pharisees beginning in verse 14. Jesus makes two distinct but related points in this chapter. Live for the future. That's number one. Number two, don't live for the present. And in fact, if you wanted to summarize the thrust of Jesus' teaching in Luke 16 in a single sentence, I think that that would be it. Live for the future, semicolon for our grammarians here. Live for the future, don't live for the present. Let's begin with our first point, live for the future. And as we do, let's read the first 13 verses. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? 
Turn in the accounts of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And thus ends this reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. Now I know that many of you have been reading Luke 16 this week, and I have heard from a number of you that this parable has been, well shall we say, confusing. Um, indeed, I've, I've asked several people in this congregation to pray that I would have understanding, because on the, its surface there are many speed bumps here, aren't there? What is the first thing that we should do when we study a passage that we find confusing? Well, we should stop and we should pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding. That's why we pray for our hearing of God's Word in the pastoral prayer. What is the second thing that we should do when we find a passage confusing? Well, I think that we should slow our reading down. Read slowly and carefully. And do you know what often happens when we do that? Well, I think the Lord is pleased to give us help. In fact, I think the Lord gives us help in the second word of verse 1. That little word, also, is immensely helpful. Why? Well, because it reminds us that what Jesus is saying here in Luke 16 is connected to what He was saying in Luke 15. You'll recall from our study of God's Word last week that Jesus has just finished telling the parable of the prodigal son and the proud brother. The prodigal son had squandered his inheritance. And did you know that that phrase, wasting his possessions here in verse 1 of Luke 16, is the same language as the language we find in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, where the younger son squandered his father's property in reckless living. These stories, you see, they're all tied together. And even if they are, this story uh, feels strange compared to the last story that's just been told. After all, we've got a manager who has been charged with wasting possessions and going out and seemingly wasting some more. When confronted with the prospect of losing his job, he acts in a rather self-interested manner. He uses his position for the remaining time that he has it 
to reduce the bills of his master's debtors. He cuts one bill by 50% and the other by 20%. And we must remember that these were large amounts. These were debts that stretched over several years. And the amount of money that he was saving these debtors amounted to several years worth of wages. If you've ever purchased olive oil, you know this. Stuff's outrageously expensive. Anyway, enough about my problems with the price of olive oil. This move by the manager, uh, it, it would have delighted those in debt. Imagine uh, having a substantial amount of credit card debt, of, of school loans, undergrad, graduate, law school loans, a loan on a car or, or a mortgage on a home. And the debt collector coming to you and saying, you know what, let's cut that debt by 20%. Better yet, let's make it 50%. I would expect that you would be delighted. And here's the key. This manager is doing this so that those in the community will owe him a debt of gratitude when he is without a job. You can see that in verse 4 that he is doing this so he will be received into the houses of those in the community. He does this in the hope that his future will not be so bleak. He acts in the present with the hopes of altering the future outlook of his life. Verse 8 is, is where I think we're often prone to stumble because the owner, or master, commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Note that the master is not commending him for acting in an unrighteous manner, but for acting shrewdly. There's actually something of a debate in the scholarship of, of whether or not he is acting in an honest manner, but I think that's not really Jesus' focus. Note that the master is not committing for acting in a righteous or unrighteous manner, but for acting shrewdly. Furthermore, note that Jesus is not commending the dishonest manager for acting in an unrighteous manager. Jesus would not do that. Jesus does not condone dishonesty and sin. We clearly see that in verse 11. What is being commended here, and what Jesus is commending here, is shrewdness. Making choices in the present in light of the future. And interestingly enough, uh, this word shrewd here, whenever it's used in the New Testament, it's always used in a positive sense. It's used in the sense of being prudent and wise. And that's how it's being used here. From the manager's vantage point, this man acted wisely for the predicament that he found himself in. He acted in such a way as to secure a better future. What then is the message? Well, the implicit message, I believe, is simply that we ought to live for the future in the present. That's what the manager did. He lived for the future in the present. This is supported by the second half of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. He's saying, listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, everyone in this world is living for the future. They are making decisions today that bring about a better tomorrow for themselves how much more should you, sons of light, with your knowledge of the coming kingdom, how much more should you live this day in light of that day? How much more should you, who have the hope of heaven and being received into the Father's house, live for the future in this present life? From here, in verses 9 through 12, Jesus makes a few complementary uh, applications. First, use your wealth in this world to gain friends and in particular use your wealth for the benefit of friends who are headed 
to heaven. That's the point of verse 9. Uh, one scholar was right when he said that Jesus' exhortation is thus not about money per se, but about what disciples do with money. And that phrase, unrighteous wealth there, can, can trip us up a little bit too, but what it's expressing is the idea of worldly wealth. Wealth on this unrighteous earth. Whatever wealth you are entrusted with in this world, use it in such a way as to bless others and be welcomed by them in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying. And who will be citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Well, those who repent. Tax collectors and sinners who repent will be in the kingdom of heaven. In, in Luke 15, repentant prodigals are welcomed into the Father's house. And if you were to flip back to Luke 14, there you would see that Jesus told the parable of the great banquet. And those who were welcomed into the great banquet are those who were poor and crippled, the lame and the blind. And do you know who goes to heaven later in this chapter? In Luke chapter 16, verse 22, it is the poor man who goes to heaven. And I think that Jesus is saying is that while you can, use your wealth to bless the poor who belong to my kingdom. This is one of the reasons that we as a church, a congregation, have a, a benevolence fund. We want to try to bless those in our congregation who are in need. And you're welcome to contribute to it, but you're also welcome, and I would encourage you, to contribute to the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ directly, especially as you become aware of their needs. If you feel as though you'd like to meet needs beyond uh, this congregation, I want to commend to you Assist Pregnancy Center. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ are daily ministering to the needs of those there, and by God's grace, many are coming to know the love of the Lord Jesus through the work of the Assist Pregnancy Center. So being generous with those in needs is not it's not really an economic principle that's often touted in this world. Right, what return are you going to get in this life? Much less is being generous with needy believers. But this principle is a principle called for by the Master who owns everything. We're not looking for a return on everything in this life. Maybe we're looking for a return on one of our investments in the life to come. In verse 10, Jesus makes a second but complementary application. It's this, be faithful and honest with your wealth, even down to the last penny. Be faithful and honest with your wealth, even down to the last penny. Disciples of Jesus must be faithful and honest with their wealth because they're not trusting in their wealth. They're not trusting, looking to it for security. They are trusting in the one who owns the world's wealth. Disciples of Jesus return that last penny. So the, the cashier mistakenly gives you $3.21 back and you are actually owed $3.20. You return that last penny. Brothers and sisters, we must be found faithful with the Lord's resources in this life. And notice I said the Lord's resources. Whatever resources we have, we have from Him, which means... We are obligated to steward them as He would steward them. Honestly, generously, and righteously. How we use and handle our money in this life is indicative. Not determinative, but indicative of whether or not we will be entrusted with eternal riches. Is that not the point of the questions in verses 11 and 12? Live for the future 
in the present. Be faithful now and be welcomed into the kingdom by the God who will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. If you take a look there in verse 13, you'll notice that Jesus, He actually reminds His disciples of the danger in the present. There is danger in the present, which is why we must live for the future. Our hearts are prone to serve money rather than the Maker. Jesus tells us that our hearts can only serve one Master. And I wonder how seriously we take Him to heart when He says that. Our hearts can only serve one Master. The truth, Jesus tells us, is that our hearts will serve a Master. Who will be your Master? Money or the Maker? If you were to open up all of your resources to an outside auditor, who would they say is your master? Could they tell? Could they discern that God is your master? Would they see how you handle your resources and conclude that you are storing up treasures on earth or in heaven? Let's broaden our application just a little bit. We can think about wealth in other ways too. You may have a wealth of energy and strength due to your youth. How can you use it to serve the needs of the body? Are there older saints who would benefit from your service? Perhaps moving furniture around their homes, cleaning up leaves in their yard in the fall? Maybe you have a wealth of wisdom due to your age and your length of following the Lord Jesus Christ for many years. That's a kind of wealth that young brothers and sisters do not have but need to have and you can give it to them. You may have a home to share through hospitality. You may have a family to share. A treasure which will only last for a short season. Have you thought about inviting other brothers and sisters into your home to see what it looks like for you to love and care for and serve your children? There are younger brothers and sisters who need to learn from that treasure of wealth that you possess. A treasure that will soon pass away. As precious as a family is, they are a gift from God that you are to steward and actually, I think, press into service for the benefit of other believers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us spend ourselves in every form of our wealth for the sake of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let us deploy our wealth for the glory of God. Recently, I, I heard one preacher say something like, when we get to heaven, Jesus is not going to pat us on the back for saying, I'm so glad that you have such a large bank account on earth. Way to be a great steward. Now, that's not to say that we should not be wise and have emergency funds. But, let's raise the question, do, do we need to leave our children an estate? Are we not investing in them now so that they can live fruitful, productive lives, so they can care for themselves, provide for others, and be generous for others, and bring glory to Jesus? We may actually have the opportunity to use our resources in more radical ways than we already are. And I believe that this congregation is being immensely faithful to Jesus' teaching here. You are an incredibly generous congregation, giving sacrificially, to the work of the ministry. And 
the Lord Jesus Christ has placed this text before us because he thought that we needed to hear its teaching. And you know what? He's right about everything, isn't he? When it comes right down to it, we all struggle with a love of money. You are looking at someone who struggles with a love of money. And by the way, the person sitting next to you on your right and your left does too, and the person sitting right in your own heart. We all struggle with the love of money because we all struggle with love of self. And the only antidote to our selfish love is the selfless love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has taught us what generosity looks like, giving himself in love and service for sinners like you and me. Let us always remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Let us live today investing in our future, in glory. We want to give to the work of the kingdom so that the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ reaches the nations. We cannot outgive our gracious God. For He has given us eternity with, in, and through Jesus. In Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, Jesus has instructed His disciples to live for the future in the present. But in the remainder of chapter 16, Jesus turns to address the Pharisees. They've been listening in, and they are not happy with what Jesus has said. Let's turn now and consider our second point. Don't live for the present. Don't live for the present. And as we do, let's read Luke chapter 16, beginning there in verse 14, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, 
a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, in a number of translations, these verses, verses 14 to 31, are broken up into discrete sections, sometimes two or three. Perhaps your translation uh, does just that. The the editors are are the ones who have kind of broken these sections up for us, these editors of Bible translations. They're trying really to help us make our way around the Bible. And I think that we should be grateful for all of their hard work. These headings and paragraph breaks are are immensely helpful, especially if we're looking for kind of a particular verse on a particular topic. Um, And as I said, they're, they're helpful when we're trying to make our way around the Bible. However, when we are trying to make our way through the Bible, Sometimes these headings can stop us when really we need to kind of keep going. Uh, They can accidentally disconnect things that need to be connected. What we really need to see here is that everything that's said in verses 14 to 31 holds together as a single unit. And in this unit, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. You'll notice in the next chapter, Jesus will turn back to addressing his disciples. But here, in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 31, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. We can certainly see that Jesus thinks that all of this is connected because of the top and the bottom of Jesus' teaching here, the top and the tail, as some people uh, like to refer to it. Uh, Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets. You can see that there, verse 16, verse 31. Jesus really here is warning the Pharisees. Jesus is warning them about their future. He is telling them that their life in the present places them on a tragic trajectory toward eternal terror. They are living for the present. They are living for rewards in this life and their attitude toward money, towards money reveals that they're not living for the future. Their attitudes toward the praise of men, the law of God, and those in need do not bode well for their hope of being received into God's eternal dwelling. As hard as Jesus' words are to the Pharisees, I think that we need to remember that warning someone of the danger of their end is actually loving. Jesus is, in all actuality, making the same point that he just made to his disciples, but he's moved from exhortation to warning. And this is coming from a heart of love. The Pharisees ridiculed Jesus, you'll see there, presumably for his teaching on the love of God and money. And they were lovers of money, as verse 14 says. And you, you know what lovers of money do, right? They, they protect their money. This is what we do with idols. This is what we do with things we love. We, we protect them. We, we get defensive. And, and that's what's happening with the Pharisees. Maybe you weren't ridiculing Jesus openly in your heart. But as we were thinking on Jesus' teaching in the, the previous section, were you thinking of ways to keep a, a grip on money? 
or, or ways of being generous with money. Were you thinking, this is how much I, I get to keep. Okay, if I calculate, if I'm going to give this much, I, I get to keep this much. Or, or were you thinking, how much can I give? Maybe a way in which we're trying to protect something we love. T take a look at verse 15. Jesus' answer to the Pharisees is devastating, isn't it? God knows your hearts. He knows that you love the praise of men. He knows that you love money. He knows everything that's in your heart. Friends, He knows that about you and me. The Pharisees were trying to publicly present themselves in a certain light, the best light. Sometimes we do that too, don't we? We offer explanations for the things we do and we cast them in the best possible light so that our friends and maybe family members will say, yes, yes, that was very wise. But God knows our hearts. He knows that even though we've, we've tried to position ourselves for exaltation in the eyes of our friends, what we've done is still an abomination in His sight. It's like those who, who buy a cheap home and kind of try to flip it without really fixing it. They put paint on every square inch of the house. And yet, the septic tank is broken so that when you flush the toilet for the first time, what backs up into the house? There's paint on every wall. But the foundation is crumbling. See, God knows our hearts. He knew the hearts of the Pharisees. And what He knew is that even though they were teachers of the law, publicly recognized teachers of the law, esteemed, He knew that they didn't love the law or the one to whom the law and the prophets pointed. What Jesus is saying in verse 16 is that the law, which is another way of saying the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law and the prophets, which is a first century way of saying everything else in the Old Testament, proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is coming. Everything in the Old Testament proclaimed that this moment was coming. John the Baptist was one of the last prophets, the last one to proclaim that the kingdom of God was coming. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is being proclaimed now. Everything that the law and the prophets pointed to is being proclaimed now. I am pressing everyone to come into the kingdom. Come into the kingdom. The law and the prophets promised that sinners can come into God's kingdom through God's Messiah. And that's why all these wicked tax collectors and sinners are standing around listening to my teaching. That's why they're trying to force their way into the kingdom. And it's so disgusting to you, Pharisees. They are being wise to live for the future in the present. I am standing here, Jesus effectively says, as proof to you of the abiding significance of the law in this kingdom era. And what you've done to the law, how you've used it, is an abomination in God's sight. You have tried to make it pass away through your teaching, but it cannot pass away. Not even the, the teeniest, tiniest stroke of the law will pass away. Let me just mention one law that you've really done a number on. And that's why we get verse 18. That's why we get verse 18 in what appears to be a rather abrupt manner. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, you've really perverted the law's teaching on divorce for financial gain. Pharisees really had done a number on this law. You see, during the first century, some would use the practice of divorce and remarriage to enrich themselves, to get more money. Under the framework through which the Pharisees applied Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, 
the Pharisees were allowing men to divorce their wives for the silliest reasons. One scholar pointed out that the Hillel school of the Pharisees thought that divorce was legitimate if a wife spoiled her husband's dinner. You've burned it. We're done. And the Aqaba school in the early 2nd century went so far as to permit divorce if the man found someone prettier than his wife. This was to make a mockery of the law. And in the end, if a man found something indecent about his wife, he could divorce her. He would simply write her a certificate of divorce and send her on his way. And what happened when he did that? Well, you know, all of those gifts that couples receive due to the generosity of their family and community? Well, the husband got to keep everything, leaving his wife destitute. And what happened when he married again? Well, we can only imagine the gifts that come flowing in again. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, your love of money is leading you to encourage others to commit adultery. You are encouraging men to dissolve their marriages for the sake of their greed. Jesus is not only chastising the Pharisees for how they have effectively tried to make the law pass away, but he is also presenting himself as the true keeper and faithful interpreter of the law. It is the love of money that is leading the Pharisees to mangle God's law. They really can't serve God and money. And that's why we've got verse 18 in this larger section on money. Now, I'm not going to stop here and address all of the very important questions about the exception clauses found in Matthew's Gospel or the, or the other passages of Scripture that speak about divorce being permitted under certain circumstances. Those are very important questions. They have their place. And I'm happy to try and answer a number of them uh, at the door after the service. Those questions are not what Jesus is most concerned with here in Luke 16. What Jesus is most concerned with here in Luke 16, and particularly at this point in his message to the Pharisees, is that they ought to repent of living for the love of money in this life. Jesus illustrates the danger of living for the love of money, of living for the pleasure of the present in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's verses 19 through 31. With this parable, Jesus brings the end, what's going to happen in the end, he brings that into view right before their eyes. And let me just say that this is a parable. It begins the same way that the parable the dishonest manager began with the words, there was a rich man. And as we can see, this rich man had everything he thought he could have ever wanted. He was wonderfully wealthy. But at his gate was a man who was in dire need. He was hungry and hurting. The abundance of the rich man's wealth could have met the needs of his poor neighbor. But the dogs had more mercy in their hearts than this rich man had in his. Now, in the first century, people tended to equate wealth with the favor of God. Preachers sometimes still do that today. If God loves you, He's going to bless you with lots and lots of money. That is absolutely false. It is a lie from the pit. People believe it today, and they believed it back then. Uh, they would say, oh, there's that, that rich man. You know, he must be blessed by the Lord, and his wealth proves it. Appreciate what J.C. Ryle wrote uh, when he said, Let us never give way to the common idea that people are to be valued according to their income 
and that the person who has the most money is the one who ought to be the most highly esteemed, there is no authority for this notion in the Bible. The general teaching of Scripture is flatly opposed to it. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many are noble. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him glory in this, that he knows and understands the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 24. Wealth, says J.C. Ryle, wealth is no mark of God's favor. Poverty is no mark of God's displeasure. The Pharisees... And everyone standing around listening to Jesus telling this story would have been shocked when Jesus said that the rich man went to hell and the poor man went to heaven. Verse 24 underscores the agonies of hell. It's a place of anguish and flame. No one is happy to be there. And no one can leave there. God's judgment is final and fixed. That's what verse 26 communicates. So what's the difference between the rich man and Lazarus? Our present experience of this life is not what determines our future. Just because we live in comfort in this life does not mean that we will live in comfort in the next. And just because we live in agony in this life does not mean that we will live in agony in the next. Take a close look at verse 25 there. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now that word you're there in that phrase, your good things you received in, in your lifetime received your good things. Uh, that word actually expresses something of a choice in the uh, Greek. The rich man chose what was most important to him. And it was the pleasures and riches of this world. He chose money. He loved it. And that was true of the Pharisees too. Why didn't he choose to use his worldly wealth to make friends with those in need so that he might be received into the eternal dwellings as Jesus said in verse 9. He could have done that with Lazarus. Why didn't he? It was because he loved money. Verse 13. That's why we read uh, from the Old Testament that passage from Amos. The people of Israel loved money. This has been a long history of, of problem for every human being. The love of money. Uh, now you can see in verses 27 and 30 that the rich man wants to get a message to his brothers while they're still on earth. He wants them to know that hell is a terrible place and that they should live their lives so that they do not meet his end. But what was Abraham's reply to this request? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Who did Moses and the prophets, who did the whole Old Testament point to? The whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And were the Pharisees listening to the Old Testament? Were they listening to Jesus? No, they didn't even listen to Jesus and his disciples after he got up from the dead. Friends, this is what the love of money can do. It can lead you to hell. The love of money is so powerful because it promises us safety. It promises us security. It promises us satisfaction and pleasure. It can gently take us by the hand and lead us down to hell. The love of money tries to stand in the place of the maker 
and it fails every time. The love of money tries to do everything that only God can do. Friends, do you know what happens to every billionaire on the earth? They die. Money cannot deliver on the promise of safety, security, and satisfaction. It wasn't made to do that. It wasn't made to be loved. It wasn't made to make us feel loved. It was made to be leveraged for the glory of God. Money was made to be put into use for the honor of God. And we must be careful here, for we suffer from the same disease of the love of money as the Pharisees. We live in a material world, a consumer-oriented society, and we drift in and out of the love of money. And yet there is hope for us, and it's found in Jesus Christ. He is the one who gave us this teaching on the love of money. And in His kindness and grace, He has warned us where our love of money can lead. He is calling us not only to hear the testimony of Moses and the prophets as it pointed to Him, but also the testimony of Luke. Jesus is calling us to hear the good news that He has spent Himself for sinners like us. Jesus never worshipped money like we have. He never lived for the praise of men like we have. He lived the perfect sinless life for sinners like you and me. And then on the cross, He laid down His life. He died bearing the punishment for sinners like you and me. And three days after His death, God the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, proving to us all that His costly sacrifice on our behalf paid our debt. Now, Jesus offers us the riches of His righteousness and the eternal reward of a home in heaven with Him if we will turn from our sins and place our faith in Him. If we would turn from our rebellion, turn from our love of money, turn from our love of praise and place our faith in Him. Friend, believe that Jesus lived for you, that He died for you, and that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Turning from your sins and placing your faith in Jesus and following Him Following after Him is what it means to live for the future in the present. And as we conclude, I think that it's important to, to recognize that two figures in our passage actually personally embody this message. Live for the future in the present. Have you thought about why Jesus might include, might have chosen to include Abraham as a central figure in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? I'm sure that Jesus had many reasons for including Abraham in his parable, but one of them I think must be because this is precisely how Abraham lived. Abraham lived for the future, trusting in the promises of God. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's on page 1007, it's at the bottom of that page, I think. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. And as we read, reflect on how Abraham lived for the future in the present. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out knowing, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, 
as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. You see, Abraham, he risked everything, all of his wealth, leaving his homeland. And he has been richly rewarded. He risked everything. Only... Trusting God is not actually risk. It is the surest thing in the world. And the same is true of Jesus. Just as Abraham was richly rewarded, so Jesus has been richly rewarded. He is the other figure in our passage in Luke 16 who has shown us what it means to live in the present for the future. Skip ahead one chapter in Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 12. And pick up reading almost there at the end of verse 1. Right there at the end of verse 1, you begin to see an exhortation. Let us run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, friends, Jesus knew what it was to live for the future in the present. And what He calls us to in Luke 16 is something that He knew Himself. That he knew and lived for our eternal joy and for His. Let's pray together.